Hi, I'm Scott Fitzpatrick. Welcome to the GAF Podcast. This podcast is for professionals who want to work in the advisory space. It's a series of conversations and essential frameworks to give better advice. It's the stuff they don't teach you at uni. It's where value sits. So buckle in, volume up, let's go. In this podcast, I talk to John Kenfield from the Solutionist Group. John is an expert in dealing with family businesses in conflict. He helps with mediation, wealth transfer, wealth succession. Listen up, this guy's the guru. Welcome to the GAF podcast. My name's Scott Fitzpatrick. Super excited to have the guru John Kenfield here from the Solutionist Group. John's the guru in family business, business conflict, wealth transfer. He's been doing it for many, many, I was going to say decades, John, but a long, long while. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Scott, and decades would be accurate. Yes, it's been a while, my friend. But, John, maybe just for everybody listening, you just give us some of your background, how you got into this particular space. Yeah, it's been a little bit convoluted. I was always going to be a lawyer. Um, but I took a few years off after uni to uh, work as a professional diver, and that sort of diverted me into some other pathways, which strangely enough ended me up as a chartered accountant. Um, I uh, went from the UK to Africa with Deloitte, um, and then came over to Australia in the mid-80s, again with Deloitte. I had always been keen to get law and accounting working together, so... I got into dispute resolution as an arbitrator, and then I was right at the ground level when uh, mediation was introduced into Australia. Got very involved in that. And I became more and more involved in problem solving rather than litigation and forensic accounting, which is something I also had a lot to do with commencing in Australia back in the 80s. Um, I, uh, through a, through a professional colleague, I ended up having a chat with a guy who was setting up the Bono Institute, and he uh, decided to get a thinker's breakfast happening, so he had some breakfast meetings in a cafe in Turak, and he just tossed a, a rock in the pond and get people talking. He placed me next to, or I ended up next to a guy who was starting up a family business association, supported by big families like Smorgans and Pratt's, who had found them? Who found they had to take their families over to the U.S. or to Europe to get any credible advice about how to successfully transition um, a significant family business from one mm. generation to the next? Interesting. But he just found he just found that his accountant lawyers were just giving conventional advice, and this guy was looking for somebody who could uh, understand legal, financial, business stuff, and at the same time work with people who. Um, had a, a relationship and got themselves into trouble and that sort of fitted my profile and that was uh, late last century <laughs> and uh, that's where it all began so I wow. started, uh, I was the guy with the red helicopter that uh, just threw into the middle of a family business conflict Isn't that interesting, so you went from legal, accounting, mediation went to a breakfast and all of a sudden here you are decades later in this in this business and well regarded in the whole mediation space for these high net wealth families. Interesting also, there was they had to go to the States initially to get this advice. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, and it was it was very interesting in the early days because it was a bit like uh, some of the uh, images of Socrates and his students and so on. Because in the early days, the, the very few advisors that were around in this space pretty much pulled their resources um, because we were all trying to work out what the hell to do. Because we were discovering that traditional approaches towards mediation, uh, business advisory, all of those sorts of things, they needed to be modified if you were working with a family group um, because the conventional stuff just didn't feel right, didn't work properly. And we, uh, the Family Business Australia uh, brought some American uh, consultants and academics over in the very early days. Yes. And we all sat around at their knees just soaking up the wisdom. And then we had the benefit of being able to say, well, I don't think that would work here, so let's pick the good bits. And I think we, we actually built our own advisory paradigm in Australia, um, which 10 years later, which would be a while ago now, um, back at conferences in the States, we're right up there with uh, the best of what was happening anywhere in the world, I think. Oh, that's fantastic. And, you know, this podcast, as I mentioned to you, is with a backdrop of the what's occurring out there in legal and accounting and financial services with commoditisation occurring. And everybody, you know, heading towards the upper end or would like to work with the successful families or successful business owners where there's some more complexity and value sits. But, you know, we started having a chat, John, about this is the practice of the future, possibly. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I think there's a lot in that, Scott. Um, I've been banging on the drum for uh, 30, 30 plus years, 40 years maybe, um, about uh, computerisation, artificial intelligence, replacing an awful lot of the compliance and procedural work that we see happening in legal and accounting firms in particular. They're my main areas of knowledge. Um, and I have a theory based on no facts at all that 80 percent of um, I subscribe 80, to that theory. <laughs> they're the best ones. You can modify them as, as you need to. Um, I, I firmly believe that 80 percent of most accounting practices work. Revenue is going to is going to shrink to 20 percent of um, what it is now. So a quarter of what it is now. And uh, through promoting things like zero and more sophisticated artificial intelligence yes. systems. Yeah. And uh, in many years of doing a lot of training for, for the uh, Institute of Chartered Accountants, um, I always found that by far the most interesting topic for the guys there was the trusted advisor. How do you become a trusted advisor so you can move up the value chain with your, with your clients? And there was enormous enthusiasm to do it. And when you actually work through the mechanical steps to implement a trusted advisor culture or program, there was nobody doing it, and the people who you caught up with a year or so later had still never done it. it. It seems to be in the mind of a lot of professionals, but it just doesn't happen because they're so busy doing it. They're so busy with the day-to-day. They, they just don't put the time in. Yep. Now, let's talk about this family business you know, marketplace. And I love that quote of yours, that family business makes no sense. Maybe if you could explain that one. Yeah, that's got me into trouble a few times. Um I have a, uh, I, I created a chart some years ago because I was trying to work out why are all these really, really clever things that I'm trying to do not working? <laughs> um, and then let's match them up against the key factors make for a successful family. And uh, I ended up with, I think, about 16 factors and they are totally diametrically opposed to each other. So in a business, you need to be competitive and you, and, and you advance on merit 
in a family you need to nurture and a, it's sort of unconditional support. And if you line them all up, the logic of putting a family into a business just isn't there. It makes no sense at all. And what we do know, though, is that you know, two-thirds of all businesses, and in some countries a lot more than that, are family businesses. They've been around since Adam was a boy. Um, and some of the most successful businesses in the world are family businesses. So the conclusion from that is that you've got to manage all of those contrary tensions. And if you learn to manage them well, you can turn the tension into positive energy. If you yep. don't manage well, it becomes destructive energy. And that's, unfortunately, in, in a way, that's where I get most involved. It's where the wheels start to come off and the family gets into trouble. And then the business is in trouble because the family's in trouble and the whole pack of cards comes down. Yes, and typically the you know the accountants or the legal or even the financials are coming from from their area of expertise trying to solve it. Yeah, this is a discussion I've also had many, many times. Uh, there's the old Maslow thing about if the only tool you've got is a hammer, you'll see every problem as a nail. Yes, I've just um, got a chainsaw recently. <laughs> yeah, might be more appropriate sometimes. Um, I think that's right. The, the, the discussions I used to have when I was back at Deloitte and EY uh, were to try and expand the scope of the work uh, into those other areas. And the response was always, um, our PI insurance doesn't cover that. Stick to what we're supposed to do. Don't go outside your brief. Yes. And just do, just do what you're supposed to do and do it bloody well, uh, which is okay so far as it went. And I think it's kept professions in pretty good shape for the last couple of hundred years. But we didn't have the sort of technology knocking in on the door that we have now. And I don't think businesses were as complex back then as they are now. They've always been challenging, obviously. Um, but now I think we need to do something something more, something very different. And uh, that's really what I'm, I'm sort of committed to working on. I'm with you. And I, I, I do love, I stole a line off you. It must have been 20 years ago that I use a lot. So thank you for that. Uh, you know, are you a family in business or a business family? Did I ever send you a royalty invoice for that one? <laughs> no, this is it right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I sort of modified that just recently. I'm writing this whole series of articles at the moment about conflict in family. And um, I've modified it slightly to say behind every family business lies a business family. Um, I'll use that. Yep. Yeah, I, I, yeah, with with compliments and no fee. <laughs> um, that, what it simply means is that uh, it's it really the same in, in, in port, but if you've got a family business, which is just two or more family members uh, involved in owning and probably managing in some way the business, um, it means that there is a family in business or a business family behind that somewhere or other. And that brings in the emotional relationship content that complicates everything. Yes. Um, so you, you, I, I think the um, when you're looking at the business, I now ask a question up front: Are you a business first business or a family first business? Mm. In other words, right. do you follow normal business practices as soon as you cross the threshold of the business? and forget that you're a family for as much as you can for practical purposes or are you a business which was really designed to primarily to support the family and therefore doesn't feel obliged to follow best business practice all the time 
or even your own policies all the time. And also in your family, ask yourself the question, and I do separate the two out. I, I like to have meetings, might be the same people, but I like to have meetings which are family meetings talking about family stuff from a family perspective and business meetings talking about business stuff from a business perspective. So I ask the same question in the family. Are you a family first business? Uh, sorry, are you a family first family or are you a business first family? Because by define, helping to get that definition, it's a bit of a personality profile. Yes. Exercise on both the business and the family. And once you, once you get the family to declare what it is, you can then look at the behaviours and the processes in place and say, well, that's what you say you, you, you think you are or want to be. But these, these things that are happening here, here and here don't really support that. So maybe we're getting a, a, a little bit confused in the execution of this. So, John, my vision of this is that there's two concentric circles where you've got the family values, goals and ideals, and then you've got the business, and it's where they overlap is where the rubber hits the road. And what you're saying is is almost separate these these circles out. Well, uh, yeah, when you're doing um, your decision-making, I think you need to get it's a bit like a De Bono hats thing, you yes. need to put on a different hat and get into a different headspace and you need to make a decision in the family for the family. You need to make a decision in the business for the business and then you need to work out how to negotiate the two. But I do see them as uh, overlapping circles because um, there's a so-called three-circle model of family business which was introduced back in the 80s by a couple of American academics. Um, and I modify that a little bit um, to say that a family business... The bit that you really um, you really want to work out where the rubber hits the road, it's you've got a business circle which is overlapped by a family circle, yes, and then over the top of those is a third circle which I call individuals. Yep. The, tr the traditional model is called ownership, which takes you into a legal accounting analysis, but from my perspective as a mediator and a facilitator, I, I think individuals are far more important, and it's where you've got not just a family member but but a key individual who is also involved with the business. So the centre of the whole thing is where the individual, the family and the business overlap. That's where you get, um, that's basically your nuclear reactor for the family. <laughs> so, so let's step through a, a business, a family business in succession, maybe in conflict. And we've got matriarch, patriarch have built the business. We've got you know, sons and daughters coming through, some want to be in the business, some don't. How do we treat them equally, fairly? Um, there might be some children in there. There might be some career paths. What, what's the approach you would take with this? And obviously it, it starts... It would all, we'd all love it if it was a nice, clean sheet of paper, but obviously there's some pain in there before you're brought in, typically. Yeah, yeah. well, that's, that's right. Um, the first thing is... Um, the language you used when you talked about treating everyone equally fairly that is a that is something that i pounce on because i would say that equal and equitable are very very different and a lot of families get themselves into strife because they say i love my children equally so therefore they must be treated equally yes which in reality makes absolutely no sense 
because, and, and I'll, I'll talk about a family I worked with years ago um, <clears throat> up in New South Wales, and there was a, there were three children in the family. One was a, um, the eldest daughter was, I think, a CEO of a, of a uh, small listed company married to you know, a brain surgeon or something similar. Uh, they had three gifted kids all on scholarships and the like. And the last thing they needed was support from the family. Yep. They had a son in the middle who uh, was a bit of a pampered child and was not terribly effective at anything. But dad wanted him to be the CEO of the business and he didn't really have many of the qualities for a CEO. But he was the only male in the line. And so dad tend to try to prefer him, but then he wanted to be equal, so he tried to balance things out. Then you had the third uh, child who was a single mum who'd had major issues with drugs and alcohol and had two kids, both from different parents, both, both from different guys, both of whom had disappeared. And when we took the thing to pieces and had the conversation with the family, the idea of treating them equally was just nonsensical. Because the need, the range of needs between the family was so different. What we did was go back to the values the family all claimed they had and then said, well, let's apply the values to the real situation that we've got. And does that mean you're going to treat everybody equally? It means you can love them equally. Yes. But, but where one needs significant financial and career support and probably will for life, the other needs, another needs absolutely none, none at all. But... They don't want to be neglected by their parents. So um, you need to, your compensation, your equitable treatment is you provide uh, sufficient love and attention for one, but no money. And for another, you really need to provide very tangible support. And if you try and balance it up on a balance sheet, um, you're going to end up in a world of pain because it doesn't make sense, it doesn't work. So the first thing is to recognise that you, you've got to get realistic about who and what your kids are and what's going to make them happy and the best way to help them. A lot of um, successful entrepreneurs, in my experience, end up with fairly emasculated kids, often quite emotionally damaged, because the parents have been uh, incredibly successful, and they've done that by being very powerful individuals. And the kids have grown up in their shadow, um, unable to really compete with the parents' success. And so uh, these days you often find you've got problems with depression, drug dependency and things like that with kids who have got all the smarts in the world. They've got the intellect. Yes. But they, mm. they just don't have the drive. Yeah. And so you've really got to do... I've I, I made a point really early on in the piece of, of doing personality profiling around the family after I did initial interviews and get a feel for people. I get a, a professional personality profiling exercise undertaken by a psych and then we debrief to the family about who and what the family really is. And it's an amazing eye-opener. You'd never contemplate doing that as an accountant or as a lawyer. Yes. But you feed it back to the family and say, well, yeah, this is who and what you are. And this let's use this to explain some of the interactions between you, some of the problems that you've got, some of the issues you think you brought from childhood and all the rest of it. And it opens a whole cathartic conversation, which, which removes a lot of blockers in the family to, to good relationships and lets you rebalance the whole thing. I like the way you went back to values too, as a, in my language, that's like getting a, a common context to then deal with the content. 
hundred percent. The the um, I think all of these things. I, I really start off unless there's a a massive you know emergency uh, happening at the beginning. I always think that the uh, very early in the piece with any family, I I run a what's usually a two day workshop on values, visions, and goal set. Yes, right. And and the what is what became very interesting very quickly was finding that even families that think they're in uh, drag knockdown drag out contact uh, conflict, when you go through a values exercise, they all claim to have remarkably similar values. And where there are differences, it opens up very interesting conversation talking about. And you find that that helped to set a context which says, well, we do actually all come from the same planet after all. (laughs) And and we talk and we talk the same language. And maybe we're not as different as we thought we were, even across generations. So let's rebalance this and and re-enter the conversation from a different starting point. And you have a, a ratchet effect. That's rat, ratchet, as in not yeah, ratchet. Yeah, yeah, yes, uh, as in not rodent. You, know, you, yeah. you have a ratchet effect with that conversation where you just keep moving the quality of the conversation up to the point where you can start to actually talk about shared goals and aspirations and plans and, and what will really make people happy and you know, unmet expectations over life and what you can do with that. So. Yes. You often engineer a conversation between, like I'm doing that at the moment with one family, where I'm engineering a conversation that should have happened when the kid was 15 or 16. He's now 37, um, and Dad's in his 60s. And I'm trying to get them to have the conversation that I think every father should have with his son when the son's a teenager. Yep. Um, and it's that sign-off, if you like, of the father's approval of the son and the son's approval of the father. Something similar, but it's quite different, happens with women as well. Um, but I think that in many families, a, a real cause of conflict is they've never had that pushback, let go phase it, that should happen during adolescence when the child has been allowed or has, has, has pushed himself into the breakaway to become himself. And then he grows up, and 20 years later, he's still a shadow. Tr- yeah, still, and, and beholden to the family. Yeah, he's just in the shadow of the father, and yeah. that, that, that doesn't set him up for successional leadership. And so once we get through that, is that then like a 12-month plan or a two-year plan for this wealth succession? Um, I say if you're one to two years, you're in crisis. Um, uh, I, I, I would say five years is a minimum to do things properly, and yep. seven years is ideal. Um, the, the idea of succession shouldn't be uh, a handover, a handover event. You really want it to be a lengthy process, and ideally, uh, it depends on the complexity of the business yes. and the family yeah, yeah. So, to a degree, yeah. of course. Um, but even so, it, it will usually take more time than that for the uh, successor to really um, suck all the smarts out of the parents, to get all the contacts, to understand the business and also to negotiate the next generation, the refreshing of the business that they, if they're a worthy successor, yes. uh, will almost certainly be required because you, I mean, part of the reason for succession is you want that generational, generational refreshment, which is so important to, to business renewal, I think. And I love that worthy successor because quite often you'll see that someone will want to put their hand up to be the, the next CEO or the... Yeah, the next MD, but are they the worthy successor? 
uh, I, um, <clears throat> I, I'm working with a couple of families at the moment where that's part of the challenge. The, uh, the next generation uh, guys, both guys, um, want to be uh, want to be the uh, CEO eventually. Yes. And if you say so, okay, what's your plan? Uh, how are you going to make this happen? How are you going to drive it? All the things you'd expect a potential leader to really have pretty well worked out. There's just nothing there. And if you if you if you if you basically shore them up and help them through the process, uh, I still think it's unlikely you're going to end up with a real leader. You might end up with somebody who's a competent manager, but chances are, as an owner of the business, they'll be much better served by having a a really good non-family CEO taking over. And that's often a very uh, complicated and sensitive negotiation with the family who've got rose-tinted spectacles about. Well, I, I did it, therefore my son should That's be able right. to do it. That's right. John, that leads to me to having the family board yep. concept and then the business board separate. Yep. And then, you know, leading into, you know, what constitutes a family constitution. It's double up there. But uh, I, I do love the concept of family constitutions and family charters. Yeah, they're, they're a great tool, but they tend to get pushed much too early. Yes. Uh, one, one of the default settings for a lot of advisors when they get into this stuff is to say, well, you've got a uh, you know, massive conflict happening. You need a set of rules. So what we need to do is uh, help you get a family constitution in place and that will bring things under control. Yes. Um, that's a bit like, you know, during the French Revolution, the, uh, you know, the uh, aristocracy saying, look, you're not following the rules, guys. Let's have some new rules. <laughs> it, it's just not. It's just not practical. Yes. The, uh, a family constitution should be like a legal contract. You need to work out exactly which way is up, and then you document it in a constitution, which is a good idea. So the process, I think, is one of first of all, um, you need to separate your thinking and your planning and your decision making between the family and the business. And I, I, I have a one-page diagram which just have a thing called the line of separation that, that goes between the two. They, they, they each go off on a fairly separate path. They both at an early stage, both the family and the business, need to do a check-in on their values and visions and a reset on their goals. And that needs to be turned into a long-term plan. For the business, that's usually a couple of years. Uh, for a family, that's usually 25 to 100 years in yes. the future. Yep. You know, so you know, different time frames. Um, then once you've got a bit of a plan and you've got clarity in both entities about where, what you want to do and why you want to do it, um, you then put the structures in place to make it happen. And in, in a business, even even big businesses, I mean, some of the businesses that I've worked with uh, um, turning over hundreds of millions of dollars a year still don't have a formal board. They just have you know, occasional meetings of family members who have appointed themselves as directors, um, which means they don't have a really strong, robust government. Yes. Yep. To separate out from their operations. So in, in the business, you look at having a proper board, and that might involve a, a proper board or it might involve a, a, a core board, board yep. and an advisory group or something, but basically a governance team of some sort. In the family, you do something similar. You set up what I call a family council. Um, so rather than call it a board, which then gets confusing, yes. it doesn't have legal yep. uh, any legal standing. But it is effectively a board of directors for the family. So it covers governance as the decision maker, policy maker for the family. Then once you've got those things in place and you've got the structures to 
make sure that the plan is being carried out, you then put in place things like policies and procedures in the business, or you update the business ones, and you start to look at policies and procedures in the family, which may include things like remuneration, how to use the holiday home, that type of thing. And that then eventually morphs into a family constitution, which is a comprehensive document that covers the rules of engagement. But I, I often think the family constitution, you, you need to have a, a good few things in place before you rush into that. And then that helps to pour, uh, really helps to snap all the links shut of what might be a few years of, of work leading up to it. Love it. Absolutely love that, John. The, the other thing I, I, I add in um, to a family constitution is what I call a charter of mutual obligations, which is something I've invented. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll take that as well. It's, uh, well, it's particularly useful for financial planners because they're, they're the logical people to do it. They coordinate for the whole family um, a series, uh, basically it's a checklist, which says to be a member of the family and to receive the benefits that you're receiving as a, a, uh, a member of this business family. Yes. Put certain obligations on you to look after your own affairs and therefore the affairs of everybody else. Absolutely. Because yeah. If you end up in a divorce, I had a family where um, one of the parties ended up in a divorce for the third time, and it basically locked up the entire family's planning with their very substantial business for about five years. Had they, um, had they at that time, as part of the reason why we put it as mutual obligations thing, um, had they had an obligation to have a binding financial agreement for every family member that was either married or in a de facto relationship, yep. They wouldn't have had that problem. Yes. If every family member has life insurance, if they have proper yes. insurances on their cars, yep. if they're doing their tax returns, if they've got a financial plan that says they're not going to be reliant on the family when they're 75 years old for continuing support, then you've got a, a much better you've got a much better opportunity to um, avoid conflict further down the track because yes. you, you're pretty confident everyone's got their affairs in order. High degree of probability, it'll turn yep. out okay. Now, John, we're going to run out of time, but, I, but I'm, going to, I'm going to take on notice and I'm going to have you back on the podcast because there's so much more we can talk about. But just just really quickly, what's the, what would be, you know, for someone wanting to get into this space or someone like yourself, what's one of the best practice habits that you've got into or you've seen that would help people along this pathway? Um, it may not be what you expect, Um I think one of the most important things in this space, apart from, um, well, number one, you've got to have curiosity and you've got to be prepared to really look outside of your main discipline and look at mm. what is really going on here and how do I build a collaborative practice where I know where to bring in other people to do things like coaching and psych support, counselling, uh, mediation and all the rest of it, in addition to the solid work that I'm doing with governance finances, etc. So one thing is that that open-minded willingness to collaborate with others who you trust, as opposed to working in silos. But for me, probably the one of the most important pieces of advice I could give would be to make sure you have enough me time in your life yes. to keep you to keep yourself centered. And I, I think it's a bit like the uh, on the airlines where they tell you, if we depressurize the cabin, Put your own oxygen on first so you can help others. 
because if if you're not comfortable in your own skin, if you're not confident um, in what you're doing and what you're saying, you're not much use to the family, but it's got its own profound problems. Perfect. Um, you need to turn up in your own magnificent self to start with. Pretty much. Yeah. And John, what's the next five years look like for you? Um, I'm working on a second book. Um, I'm publishing bits of it, a bit like Dickens. I'm publishing chapters, you know, by the week. Uh, but that's on uh, 50 common causes of family business conflict and how to deal with them. And as I write each of the 50 causes, which started off as 12 causes, I'm thinking of another 50. <laughs> so uh, there's probably something in that. Um, my plan is to, I'm 67 now, I, I plan to keep going because I love doing this work um, until I either start drooling or the phone <laughs> stops ringing. Um, I, I, I just want to keep learning, but I feel as though I'm in that uh, point in the life cycle where I want to um, give back a lot more to the advisor community that I've been probably fairly unsuccessful in persuading to take a different approach. Uh, um, well. I, I think that I'm, I'm moving more and more towards storytelling. Yes. Um, and helping people learn from that and maybe maybe find their own um, uh, epiphany, because I've been blessed with having my own epiphany many years ago about what I really wanted to do professionally. Um, and I hope I help other people find an epiphany so they do have as rewarding a professional life as I feel I've had myself. Well, John, I think there's a huge legacy piece there for you and mentoring these new advisors coming into this practice of the future. I think, I think uh, I'd love to spend some more time talking to you about that. But I, I want to thank you so much and we will love to get you back on if you're up for it. Um, this, there's this whole world of opportunity I see out there for advisors in this space. And there's certainly some skill sets I need to brush up on. And there's no better person to talk to you about that skill set, given you've been there, done it, wrote the book on it. <laughs> so thank you very, very much, mate, for your time. Thank you, Scott. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Gap Podcast. We're all about empowering advisors, giving them additional tools for their toolkit to give great advice. Great advice leads to great business frameworks, which leads to great results for the community.